This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to the May 19th edition of Global Engagement, our news review. I'm Patrick Ryan. And I'm Colleen Ryan. Today we're going to talk about the top five topics in the news from the past week. Uh, first, uh, let me thank our guest host, Colleen, who is uh, sitting in today for Ambassador uh, Charles Bowers, who will be uh, getting ready for our evening uh, webinar on the future of American diplomacy. Make sure uh, to sign up for that. That's going to be a, a great uh, program. Uh, first, let me introduce uh, Colleen. Colleen is a member of the Tennessee World Affairs Council President's Advisory Board. Uh, she's been a volunteer with the World Affairs Council th since 2007, when the council was formed. And she uh, uh, is a uh, Belmont University uh, Law School student, uh, having completed uh, a Haslam Scholarship undergraduate at the University of Tennessee, where she uh, majored in uh, Global Studies and Sociology. That was followed by a year in uh, York, England as a Fulbright, uh, studying uh, post-war recovery studies, including uh, fieldwork in Kosovo. And she uh, followed that with a year in Beijing at Tsinghua University as a fellow in the Schwarzman Scholars Program, where she uh, received a master's in global affairs. So we're, we're very pleased to have uh, Colleen with us today, filling in for Ambassador Bowers. Uh, Colleen, can you uh, share our topics of the week? Yeah. Um First of all, I'm just honored to be attempting to fill the big shoes that Ambassador Dick Bowers um, has on this show. And today we'll be looking into five news topics, um, starting with COVID news in the World Health Assembly, followed by China and updates on the Belt and Road, um, then global energy, cheap oil and its outlook, followed by Afghanistan, the peace deal and COVID, um, and then the International Criminal Court in America's Crosshairs. Well, it's an ambitious schedule. We have a lot to cover today that's been uh, a very uh, a very busy uh, uh, news week. Uh, first in, uh, in news, uh, as is our custom here at uh, uh, the Global News Review, we, uh, we have gotten into uh, the review of COVID uh, data. And this week, uh, we look at uh, the world stats. Uh, the previous two weeks, you can see to the left, and then uh, the, the uh, stats for today. Uh, globally, 4,890,000 uh, cases and 320,000 deaths reported uh, globally. Uh, we've uh, seen the United States uh, remain at the, um, in the number one position in terms of total cases uh, and total deaths uh, worldwide. Uh, Russia directly uh, behind us, but uh, about a quarter of the cases. Uh, China, um, you can see that this week they were a plus six nationwide. And as uh, Ambassador Bowers uh, reminded us last week, we've got to be uh, very uh, uh, cautious in, in the numbers that are being reported from some countries. So that's the, um, the rundown of, of COVID cases. And uh, we're going to talk a, a little bit about uh, the uh, news overnight uh, from the World uh, Health Organization. Uh, you may have seen in your uh, news this morning that President Trump issued an ultimatum to the World Health Organization in a letter that he posted in a tweet 
Uh, he said, it is clear that uh, the repeated missteps uh, by you and your organization in responding to the pandemic have been extremely costly for the world. Uh, the only way forward is for the World Health Organization uh, is, is if it can actually demonstrate independence uh, from China. Uh, he said that the U.S. would reconsider membership if the WHO did not commit, um, would not consider uh, membership if the WHO did not commit to major substantive improvements within the next 30 days. You may recall that uh, last month uh, he suspended payments, uh, the annual $400 million contribution of the United States to the World Health Organization uh, for a period of 60 days. Uh, he didn't specify in the letter what the, uh, the changes it were uh, being demanded, but uh, he said that uh, uh, the WHO uh, would be in consult that the U.S. government would be in consultation with the uh, the WHO, and that the uh, WHO uh, response uh, to his letter was that they were considering the contents and would talk with the United States uh, representatives. Uh, in response to that news about the uh, the ultimatum from the United States, uh, China responded by saying that uh, the U.S. was using China as an excuse to shirk its financial responsibilities that had been jointly determined by WHO member states. Uh, the uh, foreign ministry spokesman said, quote, the unilateral US move to stop funding is a violation of its own international obligations. And that, uh, that China was still in a critical juncture uh, in uh, support of the WHO's upholding multilateralism and uh, its support of uh, international anti-pandemic cooperation. So this uh, is just uh, the latest, um, move on, on the part of the United States uh, and China in response uh, that uh, raises concerns about uh, influence on the international stage and the, uh, the bickering between uh, Beijing and Washington. Uh, just uh, so you know, the US gives uh, 400 million a year to the WHO and in response to the, uh, the current uh, WHO flap, China's pledged an additional $30 million, which is about one third above its uh, biennial donation. And in uh, related news, uh, this week, the, uh, the World Health Assembly, which is the governing body, the decision-making body of the WHO, uh, met for two days in uh, a virtual conference. Um, and of note, uh, Xi Jinping uh, of China addressed the meeting uh, on the U.S. side. Uh, HHS Secretary Alex Azar uh, talked to the group. Um, there are some who, who probably would have liked to have seen President Trump uh, address the WHO about our concerns, uh, but uh, Secretary Azar represented him. And he said that, uh, quote, they, uh, we must be frank about one of the primary reasons uh, the outbreak, the COVID-19 uh, outbreak, spun out of control, that there was a failure uh, by this organization, the WHO, to obtain the information that the world needed, and the failure cost uh, many lives. Uh, the WHO states uh, have agreed uh, to set up an independent inquiry into the global response to the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, that was approved in a resolution uh, at the meeting of the World Health Assembly uh, with the uh, EU coordinating a uh, resolution among uh, 100 uh, nations. So um, uh, the, end, uh, the resolution in the end calls for an impartial, independent and comprehensive evaluation of the international response it's looking at the, uh, the WHO's timelines pertaining to the COVID-19 pandemic and, uh, and the functioning of, uh, of the WHO itself. 
uh, the U.S. was not uh, entirely satisfied with how how much the uh, uh, the review was going to uh, address some of the issues it has, but we'll uh, look for further reporting on that. Uh, just a, a recommendation, if you wanna learn more about the uh, World Health Assembly and what's been happening with the United States, China, and the WHO, the uh, BBC World News has uh, very solid uh, reporting uh, on what's happening there. The uh, Chinese uh, state media finished off uh, the two-day uh, uh, meeting of the WHA with uh, a message from President uh, Xi Jinping that, uh, quote, China is sincere, China is responsible, and China is contributing. So, uh, you know, the back and forth between China and, uh, and the United States uh, continues. Um, so we'll, we'll look for more on, the, on what's happening there. Colleen, uh, let's uh, take topic two and uh, we'll segue right into what else is going on in China. Yeah, so while China continues to demonstrate its commitment to contributing, its most ambitious global engagement initiative to date is stagnating more than at any other point in its seven-year history. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with the Belt and Road Initiative. It's a vast collection of development and infrastructure initiatives announced in 2013 by President Xi Jinping, um, intended to stretch from East Asia over to Europe um, a vast network of highways, energy pipelines, railway infrastructure. Um, as of January, China had already invested an estimated $200 billion on these efforts. Um, and research by Morgan Stanley has predicted that China's overall expenses in the lifetime of the Belt and Road Initiative could reach $1.2 or $1.3 trillion by 2027. Um, so in the midst of the ongoing pandemic, China faces some real challenges keeping the momentum moving on the BRI. Um, as you probably recall, China's GDP declined by 6.8% in the first quarter of 2020 from the year prior, um, making it the first economic contraction that China has experienced in decades. That's, uh, that's a pretty phenomenal uh, drop in, in their, uh, their GDP. It, it seemed like they were pushing 10% for 20, 25 years. Yeah, I mean, COVID is having an impact on um, economies across the board. Um, and in a piece the New York Times reported, um, many of China's Belt and Road partners, countries from Pakistan and Kyrgyzstan, many with much weaker economies than China's historically, um, have been requesting that China restructure, delay, or even forgive payments on the tens of billions of dollars in loans that are coming due in 2020 related to Belt and Road Initiative infrastructure, um, which puts China in a bit of a it fit between a rock and a hard place. Um, does Beijing oblige these requests, restructuring and forgiving when its own economy is really struggling um, and strained by coronavirus? Or should it demand repayment um, or take over assets in countries that are already struggling with underdeveloped healthcare infrastructure and high poverty levels? Um, it, in addition to that, the BRI's progress um, is strained by the obvious changes to supply chains, by travel bans that are affecting migrant Chinese labor. Um, but there are opportunities available for China to really seize on some of the current dynamics that have resulted from the ongoing pandemic. Um, one such opportunity in particular, within the BRI, there are some non-physical infrastructure components, things like the digital Silk Road um, that aim to enhance digital connectivity across the regions connected 
by the BRI and in particular further China's place as a technological superpower. Um, so these are dynamics that I think we'll continue to see as China adjusts its own um, domestic and foreign policy to the real strain that coronavirus has put on the global economy. Now, uh, Colleen, you spent a year in Beijing at uh, Tsinghua University and, and you did an internship at Carnegie Tsinghua. Um, so I'd, I'd like to just get your impression on how the, uh, you, you probably didn't talk to the average Chinese citizen, but uh, the Chinese that you, you spoke to uh, in your university studies uh, at Tsinghua and at the time you spent uh, at the, uh, the Carnegie think tank there on, on campus. What, what was your impression on how um, uh, people in China felt about all the international um, connections and expansion, um, how, how Chinese influence was, was uh, moving about the, around the world? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of Chinese people really see um, China playing a critical role as sort of a, a global South power. Um, a lot of the rhetoric around the Belt and Road Initiative um, and Chinese cooperation with global South countries is that China is better able to understand and cooperate with global South countries, having in its own recent history and in many ways still uh, maintaining a status as a developing country. Um, without the same history of Western colonialism um, that sort of fragments a lot of Western relationships with Global South countries. Um, so my experience in China, um, at which point the Chinese economy was still doing quite well, um, a lot of Chinese feel that it's sort of a responsibility um, and, and part of what China needs to be focusing on to claim its place as a power alongside the United States is to be building these ties. Um, because the Belt and Road Initiative fundamentally is an extension of domestic policy within China. A lot of the priorities within the Belt and Road Initiative are developmental priorities within China itself um, and access to resources. And so opinions may be changing now that again, the Chinese economy is starting to experience the strain that um, we all are at this point, but certainly I think uh, your average Chinese person or, or certainly the Chinese students I was in classes with and researchers that I worked with um, believe in, in China's ongoing multilateralism efforts and um, commitment to cooperation. Can you comment a little bit on the, the, the countries that are receiving some of this infrastructure aid and economic support and investments? Um, capital and so forth from China. Uh, I, I think you, you were telling me that uh, the concept is called a, a, uh, or characterized as a, a debt trap. Uh, is that uh, uh, something you can comment on? Yeah, so there have been, um, especially in the early periods of the Belt and Road Initiative, um, a number of more controversial instances of um, some investments made by Chinese companies not being fruitful for the countries that they were invested in, um, notably a, a port in Sri Lanka that um, after uh, Sri Lanka could not pay um, on the investment that China had made, China had seized the port. Um, and certainly there have been many instances where um, 
recipient countries have not fared as well as I think certainly their hopes were going into their relationship with the Belt and Road Initiative. Right, and I'm sure that the impact of uh, the COVID-19 around the world and in these countries that are not uh, well suited to to deal with it and, and it, uh, you know, any downturn in the economy uh, can cripple our ability to uh, to repay those debts. Definitely. Um, so it'll be certainly interesting to see how Chinese policymakers and recipient policymakers move forward on Belt and Road plans um, as the pandemic continues for the foreseeable future. Terrific. Well, let's uh, move on to our next topic. We're going to be talking about energy today. Uh, for the past uh, couple of weeks, the past couple of months, actually, we've been seeing uh, dramatic drops in uh, the uh, the energy uh, cost, the global energy cost, uh, specifically uh, the crude oil industry. Uh, I think it was two weeks ago we saw that uh, Brent crude was trading uh, for a negative $40, and everybody was making jokes about how they were going to invest negative $40 into uh, a couple of barrels of crude oil that they'd uh, uh, recoup later on when the price went up. Uh, we're going to run through uh, some slides here provided by the uh, energy uh, information Agency, the EIA, uh, they produce uh, some dandy uh, reports on world uh, energy, United States energy, country by country, region by region, uh, and the global uh, output. And uh, in the first slide here, and, and we've talked a little bit about the downturn in energy, you can see um, uh, the world production of energy um, has uh, dipped uh, significantly in million barrels per day uh, in the um, uh, the, uh, the final quarter of 2019, it was riding at about 100 million barrels a day and then hit a downturn in uh, Q1 of, of this year. And that, uh, that followed uh, world consumption, uh, which hit a low point of about 82 million barrels a day in, uh, in Q2. Uh, currently, the, uh, the consumption of uh, uh, world powers, uh, world uh, consumers in the, in the energy market you can see the forecast is uh, looking at uh, bouncing back in Q3 and Q4, uh, but a lot of people are uh, hedging their bets because we really don't know what's going to be driving the global economy in, in months to come. You know, we, uh, we saw in Colleen's presentation how uh, China had hit a 6.8% downturn in its GDP and China being a major consumer of uh, uh, crude oil, especially from the Middle East. Uh, they, uh, they're kind of a bellwether and uh, what the economic forecast uh, will mean to the world energy market. Uh, you can see here the annual change in world liquids fuels consumption uh, by uh, region. Uh, the United States in blue, uh, we've, we've uh, basically seen a downturn in all the, all the markets, uh, non-OECD. And the uh, OECD is the, uh, uh, the industrialized nations of the world. Uh, the breakout here includes uh, the Middle East, India, and China. And you can see how everybody uh, has uh, been consuming much less uh, in terms of million barrels per day. And the downturn is uh, 8.1 million barrels per day in 2020, the forecast, uh, including where we've been so far in 2020 and, and for the rest of the year, uh, their, uh, their forecast is that uh, we'll wind up with a uh, net negative uh, of 8 million barrels per day uh, consumed, uh, expected to bounce back by 7 million barrels a day uh, in 2021. 
So that's uh, something hopeful for uh, the energy industry that uh, that it bounced back. Uh, but uh, I, I still don't think you're going to see an annual or a daily rate uh, climb significantly because there's um, going to be uh, an overproduction uh, that follows uh, suit as the uh, the OPEC uh, and non-OPEC producers uh, uh, crank up uh, their oil production to try to recoup their losses from uh, 2020. Uh, here's a, a breakout uh, uh, defining the difference between non-OPEC production and OPEC con uh, production. Um, and it's, uh, it's significantly uh, on the side of non-OPEC producers, but a lot of that is uh, uh, consumption by uh, countries like uh, the United States and Canada and other uh, non-OPEC countries, some European uh, producers that, uh, that have uh, oil production, and a lot of that is uh, consumed domestically. The world liquids fuels consumption. Uh, again, you can see million barrels per day, uh, the sharp decline in 2020 with a bounce back to expected norms in, uh, in 2021. Uh, this is the, uh, the OPEC countries um, production uh, capacity. And uh, this is uh, the way we, we look at the ability of the OPEC countries to increase production when the demand is high. And in 2020, the, uh, the uh, excess capacity of the OPEC uh, countries is almost 5 million barrels per day. And it will probably uh, uh, be reduced uh, below 4 million barrels per day in, in 2021. And before we uh, uh, totally dazzle you with uh, slides and graphics, here's, uh, here's one last uh, look at uh, global uh, production. And you can see the total world production uh, for 2020 is 95.8. 19 million barrels per day. This is oil that's coming out of the ground um, and other other liquids, liquefied natural gas and so forth. So you can look here at uh, total world production 95.19 and total world consumption uh, 92.59. Uh, that uh, takes into account some inventory uh, that was on hand at, end, at the end of year. So the, uh, the consumption is actually lagging behind uh, production. And we'll talk a little bit about the uh, the United States, where we get our oil and where we fit into the process. And people say, well, the United States now produces enough oil. We don't need to be concerned about Persian Gulf oil or oil from the North Sea or oil from Venezuela or other places. Uh, but in fact, a lot of the, uh, uh, the oil we get, we need uh, to import different qualities of oil. So we are still an importer of, uh, of some oils. But you can see where in the United States uh, our oil comes from. It's produced in 32 states in coastal waters and 41% uh, in uh, uh, Texas. And the uh, Energy Information Agency left off Alaska, which I'm sure belongs on here somewhere. We'll double check that. Uh, but Alaska certainly is a, a prominent oil producer in the United States. And finally, uh, here's the uh, major oil uh, producing countries from 1980 to 2019. Uh, the United States uh, was uh, on a decline. And then with the advent of fracking and other technologies to produce oil uh, from wells where uh, uh, oil was more difficult to, to get. And, and just remember that um, the reason Persian Gulf oil is so attractive, um, 
one of the main reasons is that it's easy to uh, to produce. Uh, the more uh, difficulty, like places uh, around the world, like Siberia, where it's difficult to get at oil, where there's a lot of it, um, it makes it not profitable. So the United States saw a drop off in oil production, but then a, a return to prominence in the oil markets, the global oil markets uh, each day uh, in the uh, 2015 to 2020 era. Uh, Saudi Arabia uh, and Russia uh, were holding kind of steady. Saudi Arabia took a, a downturn in 2019 and 2020. And you can see that some of the other major oil producers um, in, uh, in that, uh, that spot there. So, um, you know, we, we all are interested in the price of oil every time we go to the pump to fill up. Um, I don't know about you, Colleen, but uh, for me, I have not been filling up my tank uh, much in the past month. I think uh, once a month is about all we're needing uh, nowadays with uh, oil plentiful and uh, gasoline cheap. Yep, I'm about in the same boat. So uh, that's it. And uh, at, at this point, I'll remind um, our participants before we get to our next topic, uh, drop into the Q&A uh, prompt there at the bottom of your screen and please uh, put some questions in and we'll we'll turn to those after we get through our last topic and uh, Colleen uh, you're up with um, our next topic which is uh, Afghanistan. Great um, so most of you probably recall that in late February the U.S. and the Taliban signed an initial peace agreement um, mostly settling issues of counterterrorism withdrawal of troops Afghan government representatives weren't participants in the talks that led up to this deal. Um, so the deal envisioned intra-Afghan talks between the government and the Taliban set to begin in March of this year. Um, now here, more than halfway into May, the talks have not occurred. Um, and that's due to a number of ongoing barriers that have made the news in the last week or so. Um, many of you may have seen the attack that took place on a maternity ward in Kabul last week. Um, killing at least 15 people, and the same day, a bombing of the funeral possession, procession um, that killed at least 25. Um, ongoing attacks and surges of violence like these continue to inflame tensions between the Afghan government and the Taliban, um, because even though no one has claimed responsibility for the maternity ward attack, um, and the Islamic State has claimed responsibility for the funeral procession bombing, um, many Afghan officials have still attributed these attacks to the Taliban, and President Ashraf Ghani has actually stated his intention to resume military offensives against the Taliban. Um, but President Ghani, in, his, um, in an ongoing political crisis uh, resulting from this past fall's presidential election, um, has been another factor in the stagnating talks. Um, in February, Ghani, the incumbent, was declared the winner of the elections, but his victory was, has been contested by chief rival Abdullah Abdullah. Um, this continued impasse between leaders actually led Secretary Mike Pompeo to um, suspend a billion dollars in U.S. assistance to the Afghan government. Um, but this week, or over the weekend specifically, there's been progress on this front. Um, Ghani and Abdullah have signed a power-sharing agreement which will um, have Ghani staying on as president, um, but both men are given um, an equal say in the number of ministers appointed, and Abdullah has been placed in charge of leading peace talks with the Taliban whenever those get underway. Um, there are some substantive parts of the agreement that have caused confusion, notably around prisoner exchanges. The Trump administration blueprint set forth the release of up to 5,000 Taliban prisoners um, 
but Ghani has expressed that Afghanistan has made no commitment to release Taliban prisoners, and this remains a sticking point for negotiators on the side of the Taliban. But um, obviously COVID-19 looms over the course of the peace talks, um, having had its healthcare system and broader infrastructure undermined by many decades of war and crisis. Um, it's likely that Afghanistan is uniquely vulnerable to the spread of COVID-19. Um, USIP released an interesting commentary um, called Coronavirus in Afghanistan, an opportunity to build trust with the Taliban, um, which actually suggests that COVID could be a springboard to cooperation between the Taliban and the Afghan government. Um, even though the Taliban has released um, kind of contradictory statements about um, the spread of COVID within Afghanistan, um, they've already shown a willingness to allow humanitarian responders in um, to help stop the virus spread in Taliban-controlled areas. Um, and so this commentary suggests that cooperation needs to begin first and foremost with a secession of violence um, by all sides, a joint guarantee for safety and protection of humanitarian responders, and then public endorsements of social distancing measures by both the government and the Taliban. Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite an interesting uh, situation in Afghanistan. And of course, the United States is uh, poised to reduce uh, its, its presence there. Uh, interesting picture you have here. This is, uh, uh, I believe it's Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad, who was the chief U.S. negotiator with the Taliban in Doha uh, earlier uh, this year and, and last year with the Taliban leader. And I think President Trump said uh, that he wanted to uh, start the drawdown now, and the Pentagon uh, wanted to, uh, you know, again, as you mentioned, the COVID-19 situation has compounded uh, trying to sort through uh, the otherwise thorny relationship between the United States and, and the parties. Um, you know, some, some things in world politics you, you, politics you just can't make up. And one of those is the fact that Afghanistan has divided leadership between uh, two guys who have been battling each other, and, and one is the CEO of the country and the other is the president of the country. I'm not quite sure how that, that can work out. And, and uh, you know, the government divided, trying to deal with um, the Taliban's uh, demands. It's just quite a mess. Yeah, and not really having the capacity to even accurately measure um, the spread of the virus within country. Um, I've seen figures around 2,300 cases, but in all likelihood, it's significantly more um, because Afghanistan is also experiencing an issue related to the spread of coronavirus within Iran, um, which I'm sure has been discussed um, on this previously. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of Afghan returnees from Iran who have left as coronavirus has continued spreading within Iran, um, it seems are now bringing it back into um, already particularly under-resourced, even by Afghan standards and um, regions of the country. Well, let's turn to, uh, to topic five. Again, a reminder, uh, people can put their questions into the uh, Q&A uh, queue at the bottom of the screen. And our final topic uh, for today is the International Criminal Court, uh, which was in the news uh, this week when the uh, Department of State released a statement by Secretary of State uh, Pompeo uh, concerning the Palestinian issue and the International uh, Criminal Court. And in part, uh, Secretary of, of Pompeo 
said that the International Criminal Court is a political body, not a judicial institution. Um, he was referring to the uh, ICC prosecutor reaffirming uh, uh, her intention to exercise jurisdiction over the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza uh, through a new filing to the court. Uh, and this involves a, a case where the Palestinians are being considered as a state in the, in the view of the Rome Statute, which is the, uh, the governing uh, document for the uh, International Criminal Court. Uh, the United States opposes that interpretation of the Palestinians as a legitimate state um, and has uh, threatened uh, to take action against uh, the ICC uh, in the final uh, sentence in, in his statement, uh, Secretary Pompeo said, quote, the United States reiterates its longstanding objection to any illegitimate ICC investigations. If the ICC continues down its current course, we will exact consequences. Well, um, that was not really amplified in, in anything that uh, um, the secretary said in terms of what those consequences uh, would be, but the United States and the ICC uh, have had uh, uh, a checkered history. And most recently in 2017, the United States objected to uh, the ICC um, attempting to uh, uh, extend jurisdiction over uh, U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Uh, they were uh, looking at uh, jurisdiction for international tribunals uh, that might have been brought against uh, U.S. forces uh, in, the, in the Afghan uh, region. So uh, this, uh, this case with Palestine is, is not the, uh, the first case dealing with uh, the ICC and, uh, and the United States uh, interests. And we'll just give uh, a little background, a little uh, context uh, on uh, this uh, this story, the ICC. If if uh, you're not familiar with it, it was a court that was set up in 2002 uh, under the uh, the Rome Statute, which was approved uh, by uh, 20 countries back in in 2002 that are parties to uh, the uh, the ICC, and the ICC is located in the, the quaint little town of The Hague in the Netherlands. Um, just a warning: if you go there, uh, be careful. Uh, parking. Uh, parking is, is tough. Um, uh, we had a chance to visit uh, The Hague a few years ago and, and enjoyed uh, seeing that, uh, uh, that quaint little Dutch town, but it is known uh, best for the International Criminal Court and a number of other world bodies uh, that, are, that are based there. But the, uh, the 2002 Rome Statute uh, called for uh, the, uh, the ICC to have jurisdiction where genocide, crimes against humanity, or war crimes uh, might have been committed on or after uh, July of 2002 when the Rome Statute was, uh, was certified. Um, and the crimes uh, would have been committed by a state party national or in the territory of a state party or in a state that has accepted the jurisdiction of the court or the crimes were referred to the ICC prosecutor by the UN Security Council pursuant to a resolution adopted uh, under the UN Charter. So that's, uh, that's the ICC, uh, where they get their authority and, and uh, what, they, uh, uh, what they look at uh, in terms of, uh, of jurisdiction. It's also probably worth noting that the United States is not a party to the ICC, um, having never signed on to the Rome Statute that created the court. 
Okay. Um, Colleen, anything more on any of our topics? We're going to turn to some questions here. Yeah, uh, on the questions. Uh, Tracy, uh, Tracy Lehman is uh, on with a question. Uh, if Trump withholds funds to the WHO, how is that similar or different to withholding funds to Ukraine? Um, well, it's, it's probably no different in that it would be the result of an ultimatum uh, you know, I don't want to use the word quid pro quo, but there it is. Do this for that. Uh, we uh, uh, we are demanding of the WHO uh, their accountability. They're uh, uh, they're uh, stepping back from what the United States claims is their perceived favoritism towards China and uh, manifest in the way they they reported and acted upon the uh, the first indications of the the Wuhan. Uh, uh, origins uh, back in December and January of of COVID-19. Uh, in the case of Ukraine, uh, the case that that was made in the impeachment of President Trump was that it was a quid pro quo that uh, President Trump uh, demanded that uh, Ukrainian authorities investigate um, the connections between the Biden family and uh, and certain uh, uh, corrupt uh, entities in Ukraine. Uh, so again, both situations are quid pro quo. In the case of uh, Ukraine, what was being threatened to be withheld was um, uh, coming out of a, a military aid budget, and it was to provide uh, certain lethal aid and uh, munitions and so forth. Uh, so that's uh, so somewhat different than uh, than the case with the WHO. But in the case of the WHO, the $400 million from the United States uh, goes towards funding uh, that organization. And one thing we didn't mention is that uh, the WHO, for a lot of countries around the world, acts as the uh, the Center for Disease Control. The, the, these countries don't have their their own uh, uh, prominent uh, organization, so they rely on the WHO for ad advice and uh, support in dealing with uh, epidemics in their, their country, not just the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, but uh, they rely on the WHO for those funds uh, for medical support. Uh, Charles Bowers uh, uh, says that, uh, uh, Ambassador Bowers, it's uh, good that you're listening in. I hope you'll find that Colleen's doing a, a good job in your in your place here. Um, Ambassador Bowers asks uh, or comments, uh, the United States has never joined the ICC. No U.S. president, Democrat or Republican, seems to have seen the ICC as something America wants or needs to support. And then he asks why. Um, I think the argument uh, that uh, has been made in the past and uh, it was really uh, uh, hammered home by the Bush administration, um, is that uh, we don't want to yield sovereignty. And in fact, the, uh, uh, the prohibition of US membership in the ICC is actually a federal stat statute. It's not just policy, uh, but there is a US law preventing uh, the United States government from becoming a member of the ICC. And that stems back from the uh, uh, the Rome Statute. So the uh, the main issue uh, of why not is that uh, the United States doesn't want any foreign body to uh, exercise uh, judicial authority over um, individuals who are overseas or conducting something that might be uh, construed by uh, others as falling within the purview of the ICC. So um, the law is still on the books. Uh, and uh, we will probably continue 
to remain away or not uh, a participant uh, in the ICC. Um, Colleen Catherine Kelly um, from our Tennessee World Affairs Council Education Outreach. Uh, she runs uh, the Academic WorldQuest program. Catherine, thanks for uh, uh, joining us today. Could you comment on the current U.S. Department of State situation involving the arms sale to Saudi Arabia as it may or may not relate to the firing of the Department Inspector General? Uh, well, Catherine, I, I think uh, you've been doing a lot of news reading today to this uh, past couple of days to be keeping up with that. I think the, the case uh, involved uh, an $8 billion uh, sale of arms uh, to Saudi Arabia. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, this was a supplemental package because the Saudis had a uh, $120 billion uh, arms sale in the works uh, that included uh, major uh, war implements. Uh, but I think the $8 billion was a, a supplemental uh, sale of, uh, of weapons to support Saudi operations in Yemen. Uh, they've been uh, engaged in the civil war in Yemen for three years now and uh, have used uh, a great many uh, U.S. Uh, uh, items of, uh, of war material, military hardware, munitions, and so forth. And I think that's what that uh, package was. And the case about the uh, firing of the inspector general, and I think we, we still haven't seen all of this play out, but the uh, inspector general was investigating uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's release of that uh, $8 billion uh, package of sales. Um, and the uh, the background was that the Congress uh, was objecting to uh, to that sale. So it's a question of uh, the constitutional authority between uh, the U.S. Congress and the uh, administration, uh, whether the, uh, the law uh, applied in this case, uh, how it should have been implemented, and whether the State Department complied. And the Inspector General, um, as IGs do throughout the government uh, was looking into whether uh, that practice was consistent with the law or, or not. So there's more to come on on that question. Um, Campbell Lehman, uh, a student in our WorldQuest program, uh, asks, what do you think will be the outcome of Prime Minister Netanyahu's corruption trial? Um, Colleen, I don't know if you've been following that at all, but uh, you know, we've we've just seen last this past week a unity government between uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, Likud party and Benny Gantz's uh, Blue and White party uh, take power, with uh, Benny Gantz being assigned the position of alternative uh, prime minister. And uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who has uh, been in power for uh, quite some many years. Uh, was indicted by a court in Israel for corruption charges. And I believe he was uh, uh, hoping to hold on to his position as, as prime minister uh, so that he could avoid uh, that prosecution. In terms of the outcome, uh, I am not that familiar with the, uh, the elements of the case, although uh, in, in uh, corruption cases where charges have been brought to indictment, and in the case of someone in a position of power, uh, for them to, uh, to be hanging on for this long, um, my suspicion is that, uh, that there's probably something to, uh, to the allegations. Um, Colleen, any comments on, on any, of, any of those things or uh, something more in the news that might have grabbed your attention this week? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think with regards to the ICC, kind of an interesting um, thing about the U.S. relationship with the ICC is that in the very early years, um, the United States was hostile not only to the influence of the ICC over the United States, but broadly towards ICC activities. Um, and prior to um, the Trump administration, um, kind of reversing this stance on foreign policy had become more accommodating towards, not assisting per se, but supporting ICC investigations into, for example, Dominic Onguin, who um, was taken into custody for his involvement in the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda. Um, and so from the Bush through Obama years, there had been an evolution towards being more supportive of its work, particularly combating um, genocide and war crimes in sub-Saharan Africa, um, that the Trump administration has been more um, ardently rejecting of. Yeah, and, and didn't we just have uh, the arrest of uh, a Rwandan uh, war criminal? Yes, um, uh, who had been, who had taken uh, refuge, I suppose, in Paris. Yeah, um, Mr. Uh, Kabuga, uh, Felician Kabuga, uh, was arrested in, in uh, Paris. He had been on, on the run for uh, 25, 26 years now since the Rwandan genocide. Yeah, um, the ICC has certainly been much more effective at addressing um, war crimes, or effective is maybe not the right, has certainly been more targeted at affecting war crimes that take place on the African continent compared to other regions. Yeah, that's, that's what a lot of uh, African leaders uh, complain about, that when it comes to uh, the, the Northern Hemisphere, um, there, there are not quite so many corruption cases or, or war crimes cases. Although, uh, the Balkans War did produce um, a number of uh, cases, um, and and that would have preceded the ICC, right? The the nineties. So that was a different body at the Hague. All right. Um, I think we've had a, a terrific news review, Colleen. Uh, and any closing comments? Uh, I will mention that we do have one. Uh, comment from Ambassador Bowers. He said, great job, Colleen, and wants to know if you want the slot permanently. I have to say, I think you and Ambassador Bowers have better banter, so <laughs> but I keep learning from him. Well, it, uh, I think you did a terrific job. First first time at, out of the uh, the box here, and and we thank everybody for, for joining us uh, on, on Colleen's debut on the News Review. Uh, please um, tell your friends about the News Review. We're here every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Uh, Central Time, and uh, you can also find our evening uh, presentation on Tuesdays. Uh, tonight, it will be Global Dialogue where Ambassador Bowers, who has uh, probably got his feet up this afternoon, uh, will be uh, pressed into duty talking about the future of American diplomacy with Ambassador Marcy Rees, who is at Harvard University. She's the director of the Harvard Project on the Future of American Diplomacy, along with uh, Professor Thomas Schwartz from Vanderbilt University. He's a professor of history there, uh, and his emphasis is on the U.S. foreign relations. So that should be uh, a pretty dandy conversation about uh, the direction of American diplomacy diplomacy in this age of transformation, uh, taking a look at uh, an institution that uh, has uh, served America well, and, and we always tip our hats to Americans uh, in the diplomatic uh, service who are at the edge of American 
uh, influence uh, and representation around the world. I will mention uh, this is uh, membership month at the World Affairs Council. We encourage everybody to become members of the World Affairs Council. That's how we can pay our Zoom bill and uh, the other bills that we have that go along with running a nonprofit in times where nonprofits are all kind of struggling uh, to, uh, to stay afloat. So we welcome your uh, becoming a member. You can go to tnwac.org slash join and become a member of the World Affairs Council. Um, for Colleen uh, uh, and I, I'd like to sign off and just thank everybody for coming. And we will see you uh, next time on the Global News Review from the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Thank you. <music>